Welcome to DBAX Podcast. The future technology and stuff. This is the official podcast of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Sports, 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 sports. From the field to the front office, the ballpark to the broadcast booth, it's time to talk DBAX baseball. I just think about baseball. Here are Greg Schulte. And he rockets one to deep right center. That is long gone. And Steve Berthium. In the gap at the track at the wall, and he's got it, A.J. Pollock, wow! Play ball! From Salt River Field to Talking Stick in Scottsdale, Arizona, it's D-Backs Podcast, the official podcast of the Arizona Diamondbacks. It's our 31st, 31 shows, Leo, our 31st D-Backs Podcast, Season 2, they Episode 6. They never said it would last. Yeah, who, who would have thought we'd, uh, we'd be into fully uh, into year two here? Well, seeing how we're basically doing all this for nothing. That's a good point. <laughs> uh, we have run smack dab and headlong into February, so I'm happy to point out that it is now less than two weeks. We are under the two-week mark for pitchers and catchers who will officially go through their first workouts here on the 17th of this month. Although, as we often point out on the show, many of the players are here taking advantage of the weather and the facilities and the whole thing, and they've been working out here from quite some time. The physical conditioning has been the primary focus. In fact, I uh, was chatting with Nate Shaw the other day, the Diamondback strength and conditioning coordinator. He's been uh, in that role for more than a decade, and Nate told me that the, in his words, the get-after-it quotient has been as high as he's ever seen it here this year. I did not know there was such a quotient. There, well, it's I'm never not been surprised with, with you. Me. You it's rarely get after anything. <laughs> uh, I'm the low end on that metric. Yes, but he said the get-after-it quotient was sky high on the part of the players, so the work ethic is through the roof here. I'm Steve Berthium here on what I'm sure many years from now we will fondly look back upon as a historic day in D-backs broadcast history. A headline-making news event coming up in just a moment. Uh, first, though, we introduce our producer, our engineer, our man about town, the mother of dragons, the kingslayer, Leo, Bad News Gil Martin. Wow, this is the first time I got second billing. Just well, introduce second at least. Yeah, due to the setup and the big news-making yeah, event huge. that we're going to get to here, I thought maybe we would introduce you first. we a sketch artist in here. To, a sketch uh, artist? Yeah. We've the guy that them. did the Tom Brady sketch is yeah. coming in. The courtroom sketch. Yeah, we're, it's, it's, this is big. This is exciting. Uh, the wife and I, by the way, have been catching up on oh. our Oscar movies. Uh, the ones that we didn't get to see. Because we like to see all the movies before the Oscars come yeah. out, so we have an idea. So on the On Demand uh, the other night, we watched uh, Bridges Spies with Tom Hanks. Did you see that? I want to see that one. It's good. I haven't seen that. But my question, be. Leo, to you is if you were uh, captured in a foreign country and being held as a spy, who on the D-backs broadcast team would you want to negotiate your release? You know, the guy that would walk you out there halfway across the bridge, do the trade with the other spy, and make sure that you were safely uh, well, brought home. Who would be your guy? Your Tom Hanks. Let's let's first away first eliminate who there's no chance. And that's Candy. No, oh, yeah, you would. We'd never no. see you again. You'd never no. be heard from. Again. He would not be negotiating. You'd end up in the gulag for the rest of your favor. life. Um, I might go with you because I think you might wear him down. I have that quality. <laughs> <laughs> I think over time, they may just be like, I would annoy them to the point where they just give up and hand you over to us. I didn't us. really want to use that word, but... Um, I appreciate I that. Think, uh, I think I might go with well, you. Well, perhaps if you were as diplomatic in the first case, you wouldn't have got yourself arrested That's by the other side anyway. I'm so. not, I must have been lost if I got... The bigger question is, why would we be sending you over there to act as a spy on our behalf? That's it, it actually poses a whole bunch of questions as to why. All right. Now, as we've mentioned, uh, we have a brand new member with us uh, this year in a broadcast team. And in all seriousness, something we rarely do on this show, we couldn't be more thrilled to have him, part of the D-backs family. He has been, in my opinion, the best baseball radio show host in the business. You've heard his work on MLB Network Radio, Sirius XM, the whole thing. For eight years now. I find that hard to believe. Eight years have been doing that. Long time. Uh, he has broadcast all-star games, postseason games. He is very familiar with our facility here at Salt River Fields, having spent so much time in the Fall League. And beginning this year, he will be our new pre- and post-game host on D-Backs Radio, Arizona Sports 98.7 FM on the Arizona Diamondbacks Radio Network. He'll also be filling in on the game radio play-by-play, well, uh, well, in situations like today. Yep. Uh, when the Lord Commander of the Knights Watch, the Earl of Grantham, the Governor Greg Schulte, uh, is off. The Gub is still cruising Usually around cruise. the Caribbean this week. Hopefully we, we don't need to bail him out. 
He's not been uh, yeah. apprehended by another government. Uh, our guest co-host this week on D-Backs Podcast and our new radio voice, the Valley's most recent resident as of yesterday. Well, actually, you don't even have a house yet, no, so technically no. you're, you're I'm not homeless, resident. yeah. I'm the you're latest homeless. homeless guy in the Valley right now. And appar- apparently he came out here, Leo, via covered wagon because it, uh, <laughs> it took him so long to get here, almost as long as this introduction. We're glad to have him here at last, the highly anticipated Diamondbacks debut of Mike Farron. It is a pleasure to be here, and I can't believe that you actually said uh, nice things about me. It is. Don't get used I'm to it. I'm writing on the check. It is I-A-U-M-E, right? <laughs> I lose it's track the, myself, yeah. frankly. So just wanted to make sure. No, it's great to be here. It's a, This is a dream come true. This is an organization that I've wanted to work for for a long time, and I've been trying since I was 12 years old to move to Phoenix. And my wife kept telling me, well, get a job. Get a job there. We can do it. And I showed her. You did, because you and I have been having this discussion. I, I see For a, years. I see a Cactus <laughs> League. I see a Fall League. I see you when we go to Washington where you were living before, and I say, when is Erica going to break down and let you guys move out here? And you have always insisted that she would. You know, she drew the line. Too hot, not doing it, but now you're both out here with great new jobs. Yeah, we, we, we're both here, and she actually she gets uh, here tomorrow. She has to finish up her work in D.C. one more day. So, um, But, no, it's we're, we couldn't be more excited to be here. I mean, this is a great place to live, and it's a great organization to be with, and I, it should be a great season. I'm really, oh. more than anything, I'm really excited about, about the season on the field because, boy, it's when you, when you look at it and you have, you know, two of the top, arguably, maybe 20 play, position players in the league, yeah. Goldschmidt and, and Pollock, and you have one of the top six or seven pitchers in all of baseball and Zach Greinke on the mound, that's a pretty good recipe for success. I think it's – and it, the team is so young. It's, it, I think it's going to be a fantastic year. Will you still be doing uh, the series? Have you worked all that out? I am. I am. I'm going to be doing uh, a, a few – uh, fewer shows a week, probably about three a week, um, in the same time slot, uh, which is uh, what uh, eight a.m. Uh, Mountain Standard it's Time. It's early so. for us out here. How's yeah. Jim Duquette taking the news? Yeah, he's uh, thrilled. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> not going to be around nearly as much. I was your partner on the. Yeah, on we the didn't series. talk to him in the in the interview process. We, you know, Maybe we should have. Yeah, yeah background check. He said that he gave me a sterling recommendation to someone in an effort to try and get me out of there. So you know, that's the one thing when you go through an interview process. If you get too good a recommendation, you should really kind of cast your eyes aside and go, Is that, are they telling me the truth here? And I think that's what Jim was trying to do. We've also made some calls on Leo's behalf, but nobody will take them. So <laughs> <laughs> goes back to the whole spy thing. Yeah, you guys are stuck with me. Sorry. So why, why the Diamondbacks? Why this uh, career change? Because it's a pretty significant change for you. Yeah, uh, it, it is. Um, you know, I, I've always wanted to do games. And to get the opportunity to do it, I knew based on my career path where I wasn't, you know, I didn't spend 10 years in the minor leagues doing games. I was going to have to find um, kind of a different avenue to get an opportunity to do it. Hello. Right. I mean, you're a prime example of that, right? I mean, you were the, well, you were the luckiest guy at ESPN with all the games that you did. I mean, you had what the Longoria walk-off and the greatest, uh, you know, super regional in NCAA history, one of the biggest upsets. It was a good run. So, yeah. So, no, it's, it's, and, and you conned him. Well enough that you got this job. <laughs> I did. So, so I, you know, this is what I've always wanted to do, and I've wanted to work for a team and be associated with a team. Um, and so, you know, when this came open, you know, I, I mean, I've pursued other jobs certainly, but this was the one that I really wanted um, when it came open. And I think it's it's because, you know, this is where I want to live, and I have such respect for what what this organization does in the community and the way that they've continued to build. And I'm a great admirer of Derek Hall and, and kind of his vision. Um, it, it, I was hopeful that it would be a good fit. And, and I'm very, very excited to start. And I hope that it is a good fit and that you guys aren't kicking me out the door in like May no, 15th. We're, so. We've been looking forward to you finally getting here. Yeah, well, that's because you haven't worked with me. I, I've, well, I haven't <laughs> technically worked with you. I've hung out with you a lot at oh, baseball yeah. games. We've spent we've spent significant time together. Yeah, uh, I, I and about the th- you're right about being at the ballpark and doing the games. And, and Derek is a brave guy because he hired me when he didn't have to, went out mm-hmm. on a limb, and I'll, I'll never forget the way he changed my life. And you as well. And, and I always think back to what my friend Tim Kirchin told me when I was leaving Bristol. He's like, he said, Bert, 
you're going to, the best thing about this, and trust me, I was a beat writer. I've been a national guy. I've done both jobs. The best thing about it is you're going to love the 162. Yeah. And he was, as always, he was dead on correct. The 162, that ride, is so much fun. You know, I've been real fortunate that for the last now eight and a half years, I've been able to talk about baseball every day. And so it, it's, you know, this is, uh, it's amazing. I mean, it's like a, it's a pinch me gig, right? I mean, baseball is my favorite sport. Mm-hmm. I, I get a chance to, to be at the ballpark a lot because I've had a time slot that allows me the last four years to be at the ballpark a lot. I spent a lot of time at minor league ballparks. I, I, I've been able to do a lot, but what I haven't been able to do is be at the ballpark every single day for an entire season. And that's the one thing I want because like what Tim said, I love the grind. Yeah. I love the grind of 162 it's the games. Best part. I'm a workaholic, and I feel lost without it in the winter. And so that part, I am, I am so excited to just sink my teeth into that, and and you know, be and and listen, we get to be at the game every single day. Like that is the coolest thing in the world, right? I mean, it's this amazing, is what we dreamed it? of. Yep. We get paid to watch and talk about baseball. It, it it couldn't be any better. It's a it's an incredible blessing. Uh, how do you think having the logo now will change? Because you've always looked at not just yeah. baseball but the Diamondbacks as part of a national picture. That's your job, and it still is in, in some regard. You can still do your show. But how do you think wearing the logo now will and the Sedona Red will change things for you? I don't know. I, I think, and I think that that's one of the things that I've, I've thought about a lot this winter is you know, I, I won't know how it changes until I see kind of how it happens. Um, obviously, I am you know, having been unaffiliated as a fan for the last several years. I now have someone. It, it's you know, it's funny. Tony Larissa did an interview with us a couple years ago, right before he took the, the job here as chief baseball officer. And he said, "You know, I miss the winning and the losing. Yeah. I miss that part of it." And it really spoke to me because I had, uh, I wasn't a fan of a team anymore, and I missed that. That part I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to the highs and lows of that. Um, but. I, it is, I mean, I think I'll have a little bit of perspective because I'll see how it fits into the national landscape. But at the same time, you know, I think it, it you know, I'm, my hope is that being invested in a team will help make me better at my other job as well because I'll be able to see the inner workings more so than, than how it is. Because it, it, as you know, I'm sure when you walked in the door here, you thought you had an idea of how it worked. It changes and it your wasn't, picture very quickly. It wasn't, but just a, a little scratch of the surface of what was going on. And that's the part that I'm, I'm excited about. I'm an info guy. I'm an in, uh, I like to have as much um, knowledge as possible. And so that part I'm hopeful will make you know, will make me better at the other job. Well, perspective will help me in this one to, to you know, get get an understanding of where the Diamondbacks are going to fit in the national picture this year. You're dead on about that because even, well, even with Segura trade the other day, mm-hmm. we'll talk about that later in the show. We'll also talk to Tuffy Gozawish, by the way, our guest this week. I want to mention that too. Tuffy coming up shortly. But you'll read analysis of a particular move in the offseason or something during the season, and it's very clinical and it's very numbers-oriented. And I'll read it, and I'll go, boy, if you had any idea how wrong you are about this, you would rewrite the entire yeah. thing. Because you have the perspective of, and I hate to use it, the human element. But it's there. It's, there's humanity, as, as Ken Rosenthal wrote the other day. Uh, it, it's big, man. And, and you can't overlook it when you get sort of on the other side of the fence and you see the interaction and how that human dynamic is part of everything that happens it really is a game changer for you yeah and i think and i think that's the thing too is that and i think that this happens a lot and it, it, listen there's good in being distant as an, an analyst too i mean i think there is positives in that and that you don't you, there's more objectivity you, you, certainly. sure well not just that but even if you're you know we we always try and talk about things coming back to average right i mean you and i are both numbers guys i might even be more more than you are to wonk. some degree but we always yeah exactly you're a wonk i'm a wonk that's but i also love scouting and player development because i think it all comes together and that's that's really my true passion is scouting and player development when you get to that Everybody is kind of, we always talk about regressing to the mean, right? Everything's getting to the middle. And so those national analysts tend to sit in the middle like that, right? And so it's good to kind of give you perspective on it. But I think what what you learn from being around a team, or at least what I hope to learn from being around a team, is how to apply the philosophy that an organization has to the way they're doing their job. And I think that that's the overriding thing. I think that's what gets missed an awful lot. And I think, personally, you know, I 
I'm sure I'll feel differently about this in a week. Like, I feel from the outside, I've got an idea of how the Diamondbacks have been operating. And I don't think I'm completely wrong in it. But I think a lot of the analysis that's been out there has been, well, it needs to be applied in this manner, as opposed to whether or not it's consistent with the philosophy the front office is putting forward. And I think when you start to view teams as individual entities that each have their own philosophy, each have their own decisions, each things that are important, I think that's when you really get an idea of whether or not things are consistent with what, the, what, what a team is trying to do and whether or not they have a clear plan. And I do think that there is a consistent, there is an overriding consistent message with what the Diamondbacks have done basically from the second transaction of last winter to now in building a competitive environment head-to-head competition, embracing that, and and really never taking anything for granted. And it showed up in the way the game was played on the field last year. Big time. And that, to me, is what's really interesting about it is the Diamondbacks are outside the general box, what is now the general box of what everybody expects a front office to do. And they wear it a lot for it nationally. Yeah. But they are consistent in their philosophy and their application. And, you know, the last team that went through that was the Kansas City Royals, and they've been to two consecutive World Series. I mean, it took them eight years, and I think it's going to be quicker for the Diamondbacks to get back to competitiveness for that. But when you see a team apply a philosophy and be consistent with it, I think there's a lot of – I think it's really fascinating to watch how the success grows from it. The Internet gets very angry when you don't do what it tells you to do. And there is a backlash. And you're right, the Diamondbacks have been wearing it nationally. Other organizations do. But every trade gets looked at individually, and I think you hit it right on the head. There's a plan here. Hello, look at what's been going on. Um, Everybody applauds the Braves and the Astros and the Cubs, especially Atlanta here, for absolutely tanking. We're going to punt on three seasons, and we're going to be good in 2017 or 19. Everyone says, well, they're geniuses. But when you do the opposite of that, when you have allocated some resources and some personnel resources, and you spend a little bit of that to get good now, the national attitude seems to be, well, they're idiots. They don't know what they're doing. What, what, what's happening here? Well, why, why do you think that dynamic well, happens? I mean, so let's talk about the... the tanking dynamic, so to speak. And I, I really don't like that word because I think it's loaded, but I think it's right. this this idea. What's happened is with the way the collective bargaining agreement is structured, losing has a higher benefit than it ever did before because you no get question. more money to spend on amateur player procurement. And so if you want to get the most talent into your organization the fastest, the best thing to do is to trade your valuable players if you're on the decline, decline the winning decline, and and lose in order to have more money to spend. I think the difference was when Tony La Russa took over here, one, he took over in the midst of a miserable season. Um, I mean, you lived it every day. Losses. 98 losses, Lost right? 98, Never yeah. any fun. Really, Injuries. the first month was awful. The next three months, it was about a 500 team. People lose sight of that. And then too. Paul Goldschmidt broke his hand, and everything kind of fell apart. But no Pollock for a good stretch. No Goldie for a good stretch. No Corbin for the entire year. Countless injuries back and forth, right? Everybody was hurt, and you're breaking in lots of young players. But there were lots of young players that were here in this core. And that, I think, they saw. Not to mention, Tony La Russa isn't punting anything in his entire life. He might be the most competitive person alive. I don't think, I don't think if you were playing golf with him, he'd give you a gimme from six inches away, right. which is great. I mean, I think that, and I think that that flies in the face of what these other teams are doing. I'm not faulting him for doing it, because that's the system that we live in. But you also can't fault Tony and Dave for wanting to build an organization that values competing on a nightly basis in an effort to win. But people are faulting them for it. Sure, they are because they don't see because I think they miss sight they lose sight of what what um, you know what the philosophy is, and I think that they see that they're you know th- these are veteran baseball guys, right? I mean, D- Dave had a little bit of experience in the front office with Toronto and as, a, as an agent, mm-hmm. but was a terrific player. I mean, he was a, a today's bulldog. Tony had never run a team. I mean, he'd been a world champion manager. But I think that there's part of that. I think there's you know I think a lot of the internet it has to do with well how welcoming are you? How overtly welcoming are you to analytics? And I think that that you know if you hide the fact that you're in analytics. Unless you're the Giants, um, you don't really get it. You, you don't really get a pass. And even then, Brian Sabian was at the bottom of the list for years and years. The worst general manager in baseball. Yeah, how that work He's out? got three rings from his time you know, <laughs> as GM and president of that organization. So I, I think Sabian will tell you exactly. And maybe there's one ring in particular that he'd like to give you to tell you, what, you know, which one it is. So, so I think that there's there's a lot of different ways to build a championship team. 
And I think the benefit here was when Tony and Dave took over, they had a good young core. And I think you've pointed it out on the podcast several times. The second youngest team in baseball last year? The youngest the team youngest, in baseball? The youngest, yeah. And the average age was 27. And who were the players that they acquired? Okay, Granke brings up the average age a little bit, right? I mean, he's going to be his age 32 season 32, this year. 32, yeah. okay. Um, but Miller in his mid-20s, Segura in his mid-20s. They're not acquiring 34- and 35-year-old guys. They're acquiring guys that are still in their prime. And that's, the, you know, I did this the other night. If you look around the field and, okay, this guy is going to be in his age whatever season, it's 22, 23, 24, mm-hmm. 25. Goldie's 28. Pollock's 28. This is a very, very young team and still might be the youngest team in baseball. So you can afford to trade a prospect here or there. Now, you don't want to trade too many, and they're coming close to kind of pushing the envelope yep. there, a little more than you'd like to be comfortable with. But the point is they can't all play. There's only so many spots. You want depth, well, but they can't all play. So this is a very, very young team as it is. So it becomes an example. I'll, let's use the Angels as an example in this because they made a trade with the Braves too, right? The Angels did not have a particularly deep farm system. They traded their two top pitching prospects this winter to be able yeah. to get Andrew Elton Simmons, who is well, an upgrade really defensively, need. right? But wasn't I don't know that you can say that he's a better overall. Now he's got he's signed longer term and he's younger than Eric Ibar. But I don't know that you can say he's a better overall player than the guy that he's replacing in Eric Ibar. But they gave up a lot. They didn't have much depth. Now, the Diamondbacks certainly were working from a much bigger position of strength because they had young players at the big league level, because they, they had a fairly deep farm system as they went in the offseason. Now, does it hurt to trade? You know, in the last year, your last two number one well, and number two overall picks. Tuki Tucson, Dansby Swanson, Aaron Blair. Isan Diaz. Isan Diaz. Palka, so, they traded Polk at early fall right. Who was so, a little bit, I think he was a third rounder, right? So yeah. out, of, out of Georgia Tech. So, so yeah, so they does it hurt to do that? Yes. Was the acquisition price, and certainly I think everybody has seen that most of the national, most of the national feel was that the price for Miller was exceptionally high. Um, yeah, it hurts to do that. But then you also have to trust your scouts in your own eyes. And I'll tell you what, I, you know, I listened to Dave after the trade, the Miller trade with you guys. I think mm-hmm. he was on with you guys. And he was talking about what he saw in Shelby Miller. And I had just watched one of Shelby's starts. I don't think I had officially – I knew I was coming here at that point, and I wanted to go back and see because I didn't see a ton. I saw Shelby once in D.C. when he came through when he I lived there. almost threw but a no-hitter against us. Right, so I watched a couple of his starts, right? And what Dave was talking about, I saw with Shelby Miller, too. I think he's a guy that, you know, from a projection standpoint, you lose sight of the fact that he's still really, really young. 25. Just, just turned just 25. Just turned 25. And that when he was a prospect, he was a better prospect than Aaron Blair or Dansby Swanson or any of those guys. And now he's got three full seasons in the big leagues under his belt. To me, this is the most exciting. I mean, I'm excited about Cranky, but I'm really excited about Shelby Miller because he is this close to putting it all together yeah. and being a monster. You watch that 97-mile-an-hour rising fastball just Cutter. sail up and into the right-hand hitter's Right at, at the hands, just eats him up, and you go, wow, I can't wait to well, watch this he guy. He commands his fastball. He's still got a really good breaking ball. And, yeah, he's I, – I mean, I think it's – you know, I think when you – when we look at that trade in a few years, I mean, Dansby Swanson's going to be a good player. I think Aaron Blair's going to be a good starting pitcher. No and question. losing Ender no Hurts. I mean, th- this guy was one of the best defensive outfielders in baseball. He was the catalyst in the lineup last year. But and when a you look at that, they're very right-hand heavy yeah, right now. Yeah, but when you get Miller, when Miller, you know, goes through these next three years and gets close to his potential free agency, I think you're going to see that they acquire a player who is really, really good. Well, let's get into this week's news, uh, Mike and Leo. The Diamondbacks announced a trade that people have graded and analyzed in a number of different ways. Everybody, it seems, has an opinion about this. Uh, Aaron Hill, Chase Anderson, and infield prospect Isan Diaz to the Brewers. Gene Segura and Tyler Wagner, a young right-hander, come to Arizona. Diamondbacks will also reportedly pay $5.5 million of the $12 million left on Aaron Hill's contract for this year, some money that they've uh, reportedly been trying to move for quite some time. So Segura makes $2.6 million. So you save 6 on the Aaron Hill deal. You have to pay Segura, of course. So in the end, the Diamondbacks end up with about an additional $4 million in payroll. More on that in just a minute. Let's do Segura, though. 26 years old. He'll turn 26 March uh, 17th. Still a very young guy. Controllable for three more cost-effective seasons at $2.5 million. Uh, 
came up with the Angels, was once traded for Zach Greinke, mm -hmm. ironically or coincidentally, at the deadline four years ago. Uh, All-star in 2013. Fox Sports' Ken Rosenthal wrote a piece uh, this week, really had the ground go out from under him in Milwaukee. In the spring of 2014, he turned down a long-term extension. The offer of money about seven years, $40 million. The going rate seemed to be closer to $60 million, so he said no. Felt a little hurt, apparently. Uh, was offered under market value. Then in, after that, in July, had a nine-month-old son who just died suddenly and tragically in the Dominican Republic. So it seemed like the ground really went out from under him in Milwaukee. And then he had, as Ken Rosenthal wrote, a couple of down years. It seems like, Mike, if there's anybody who's due and ready for a change of scenery turnaround at still a very young age, it might be Gene Segura. He was also a very good prospect once upon a time. In fact, he was teammates in the minor leagues with Mike Trout and Cedar Rapids in A-ball. In the Angels And system. there were some who felt like Segura had a chance to be, you know, this was before Trout became, you know, Mike Trout, I mean, this all-world player, they thought Trout was going to be very good. They th didn't think Segura was going to be very far behind him. And, he, and at that point, he was a second baseman. The Angels actually moved him to shortstop, I believe, the next year. Um, or shortly thereafter, after he went to the Cal League, um, they moved him to, to shortstop there. And he's, you know, he's played fairly well there for the Brewers on the defensive side of the ball. But he is young. And you know, he's, he's not a high-walk guy, but he runs very well. He should be able to put the bat on the ball. But you're counting on bounce back because he has been, he's had two poor offensive seasons in a row. And really, it doesn't add much more certainty to the Diamondbacks' middle infield offensively. We know, you know, Owings obviously was battling the shoulder last year trying to strengthen it. So his offensive numbers aren't, weren't where we expect Chris Owings' numbers to be this year. Nick Ahmed is a terrific defender and, you know, isn't, all, isn't going to be necessarily a monster offensively, but a really good defensive player. You're hoping Segura can kind of come back closer to what, maybe it's not to the all-star levels, but if he's a guy that can hit 260, if he can get on base a little bit more than what he has, he provides the stolen bases, you know, that's the key. He's got leadoff hitter skills without the on-base percentage right now. Yeah, back the back years like a 280s OBP. Yeah. And people yeah. you know, see Stu saying, well, he might be our leadoff guy, and they go, well, wait, what? Right. Well, but that's also, and that's understandable. And I think that that's, yeah, but that's I think fair. he does have that's those fair. skills, though. I mean, he has those tools and that skill set, and he could. But, you know, who knows? I mean, Chip Hale talked about, you know, with the pitchers that he has, he can handle the bat. He might put them in the eighth spot. Segura might be a perfect guy to hit ninth with Pollock first. And if he wanted to do something like that, I, I think that would be really intriguing. I think anything that allows you to drop A.J. Pollock down into the middle of the order, even if it's the two spot, I'm in favor of. Because I, I, I see him as a potential 90, yeah. 100 RBI guy who unfortunately has to hit leadoff a little too often. If you get a guy who gets on base a little bit at the bottom of the lineup, you can drive in a lot of runs at the top, though. And right. you, I worry about moving him too far down in the lineup because do you take away the stolen base threat from him? Because as a guy who's, what is he, 39 of 46 in stolen base yeah. attempts last year, something like that, you know, I mean, he runs. He's going to, listen, the benefit to hitting leadoff is you are going to see the most played appearances over the course of the season. Sure. And so even if Pollock you know, sees what... 50 more plate appearances than he did last year, 60 more plate appearances. Maybe that's five or six more homers. Maybe that's more runs scored. I understand. I mean, it, it, you can change the scoreboard in the middle of the lineup, but Ricky Henderson hit leadoff. <laughs> and R Ricky didn't need to hit down the lineup. The greatest of all time. <clears throat> Pardon me. You mentioned uh, Segura. You go back to the All-Star year, 2013, hit 294 and stole 44 bases. And then... We mentioned the contract. We mentioned the tragic loss of his young son. And this was from a story that Ken Rosenthal wrote earlier this week talking about what Gene Segura went through in Milwaukee the last two years and how things changed for him so dramatically. And Ken, in his story, went to Ron Renicki, who is now mm -hmm. the third base coach for the Angels, but was his manager in Milwaukee. And this is from Ron Renicki talking uh, about Gene Segura when he was in Milwaukee. Uh, quoting here, he was really alert, heads up at short, particularly on pickoffs when guys got big leads. He did all the mental stuff you want to see from your shortstop. The next year, there was so much going on. I don't know if I want to say it was a lack of concentration, but there was something different. And he said he did talk to Segura a little bit about the contract. Segura admitted it was something that was bothering him. And then he lost the son, uh, and, and Renicki said the rest of the year, was really tough for him. But he went on to say this, Gene Segura needs to be happy. He plays better when he's happy. When he first came over, 
in the trade from uh, the Angels. He was smiling all the time. He'd walk by Segura in the batting cage. He'd be smiling, laughing. But she didn't see that much from him in 2014. And he said, being around guys who are relaxed and having fun, that's what makes me think he can get back to where he was. Well, and he's going to get pushed here, too, because there is no guarantee in playing time like we just talked about. Yeah. Everybody's going to be competitive. Really, Segura's all-star season was built on a terrific first half. He struggled in the second half in 2013, too, offensively. So there's a fairly long offensive history now of him going through rough times, and you can certainly say maybe that some of that was first-year adjustments. But it's a talented guy, and I think a fresh start. I think you know Chip Hale obviously is a an extremely positive guy, an extremely positive energy that he's going to bring. And I think he's going to – he's that kind of good demanding. You know what I mean? Like you want oh, to yeah. succeed for Chip. Accountability. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Accountability, but but he will have your back the whole way. And I'll be interested to see if there's that kind of energy helps to pick Segura up because I still believe he's an immensely talented player. And who knows, maybe it just maybe it finally clicks for him here. He doesn't have to be the man in this lineup either. I mean, there's plenty of guys that are that are, you know, offensive forces here where he can kind of work his way back into into the swing of being an offensive piece. And I, I'm really hopeful that he can be. It's a good gamble. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody loves seems to love Diaz. Uh, Peter Gammons tweeted that really when hit. Diaz was in high school, there were Robbie Cano comps. Well, it's because he's from Massachusetts. I know he's so, from Western I mean, Mass. He's actually from Springfield, which is right near where Nick Ahmed grew up. Yeah, yeah, uh, Diaz. But it was another young guy I hated to see go, but it it fits the the big picture plan that's going on here, which is we've got a three to five year window. Let's win now. Let's not wait for the Diazes and the Tukies and guys like that. Let's get some good guys in here and let's go. And and I think that that's specifically the three year window. I know it's was four years left at the Goldie's under team control um, as of right now. I think there's this three year window with Pollock, Goldschmidt, uh, Miller. Uh, obviously now Segura has three years left, mm-hmm. um, where you really feel like you've got this core group together. And, and I think Corbin fits into that mix too. Um, that you feel like you have a chance to compete every single season. And, you know, some teams want to be competitive and get the chance to play in October with the hopes of winning the World Series. And this organization wants to win a World Series, not hoping to win a World Series. It wants to win a World Series. That is the number one goal. And every move that they've made has been how do we maximize this because we know we have these two elite-level talents right here. When the deal with Milwaukee was announced, Dave Stewart, the GM, strongly hinted uh, that the money the team had saved, as we mentioned, about $4 million on the Aaron Hill deal, plus the surplus of infield talent, that another deal would be coming soon, most likely for a relief pitcher, maybe even a closer, Stu said. But then there was a story from our friend Steve Gilbert at MLB.com Wednesday where Stu seemed to sort of reverse course and said the Diamondbacks don't have much going on right now regarding another trade. And, in fact, he was asked if there's a deal out there for another arm at a price he'd be willing to pay. Stu said none whatsoever. And then went on to say, you know, he likes the group of kids, and there are a whole bunch of them. I mean, if you go down the list, Silvino Bracho, Enrique Burgos, Burgos. Evan Marshall, Jake Barrett, Dominic Leone, there's some young guys there. They brought in veterans, Cody Hall, Adam Lowen, Wesley Wright, Sam Lequeur, all guys who potentially will compete for precious few spots in a bullpen that has a core group of Colmenter, Delgado, Chafin, Hudson, Ziegler. There's not a lot of spots back there anyway. Uh, what's your take on do we give some of the young guys a chance because some of these guys are good young pitchers, hard throwers, or do we go out there and get that one more veteran arm and use that $4 million? You know, I think in the, in the age of specialization, optionable depth is really important to an organization. And so having veteran, having young players, having young relievers that can, unfortunately for them, to some degree ride the shuttle between Phoenix and Reno, mm-hmm. really helps the team overall because it helps to make your team, instead of a 13-man pitching staff, an 18-man pitching Enrique staff. Enrique Burgos was that guy great, last year. Great example, and I love Burgos. I think his stuff, yeah. after seeing him in the Fall League two years ago, I fell in love, and I just he hasn't returned my Valentine's cards yet, but uh, but he will. He will. I'm sure he'll be thrilled to see yeah, you. I'm sure he's going to be very excited <laughs> now. Um, no, but I think, Burgos, I think Burgos has a chance to be a very, very good relief pitcher. But that said, I mean, you could, you're also trying to win now, right? So is there a spot for another veteran guy? Nick Pecoro in the Arizona Republic today brought up the idea of Tyler Clippard being a fit. And Dave still Stewart out there. Didn't, didn't 
didn't balk at it. Said if there was one guy that was out there, that would be the guy that we consider. Clippard's thrown a lot of innings. He's extremely durable. Fastball changeup guy. Um, he's been doing All Star game. You know, he was a, a key member, a key acquisition for the Mets down the stretch last year. But he kind of struggled in September and into October. But overall, his numbers were pretty good in Oakland. Um, you know, it's not. He's a fly ball pitcher, so that can be a little bit troublesome at, at Chase Field. Um, and it can be a little bit troublesome in Colorado, but the rest of the division, it's a good spot for him to be in. And he's battle-tested. He's been through the wars. He's got experience closing and setting up. And it doesn't matter what role you put him in. He's a guy that wants to win. And he's a terrific clubhouse guy, terrific guy overall. I think he would be a really intriguing fit if they were to go down that road to add another, uh, add another right-handed reliever. And I, I think you know, he's the guy that has the best pedigree that's really left. It's going to be interesting to see if they go out and get one more bullpen arm and use that money. Uh, in any case, uh, one of the guys who'll be catching all these pitchers is our next guest. Let's welcome him right now. All right, friends, it is time. Ladies and gentlemen, our first guest tonight is, uh, he's so good. Celebrities are here in profusion, one after another. Not only superstars, but really super people. My guest. My guest. Would you welcome him, please? Back with us again, a, a frequent visitor, and we're glad to have him on D-Back's podcast. It's Tuffy Gozoish, who just finished working out and has been kind enough to spend a few minutes with us. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. What's uh, been the off-season plan for you? Because you're coming off that knee injury in St. Louis. How's, uh, how's that progressing? It's, uh, I'm 100% right now. You know, I've been coming into the, the complex all off-season. Um, really took two weeks off when the season ended, and then I took another two weeks off uh, when my daughter was born, and that was about it. And, uh, you know... Other than that, I've been coming in three or four days a week to the complex. So you got new daughter, mm -hmm. new team in, in a sense, mm -hmm. uh, new knee. Mm -hmm. A lot of changes for you here. Many changes. I decided to do them all in one year. That's the way to do it. I never <laughs> Like had Mike Farron. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I've never had a dog, a house, a kid, uh, surgery, and I had all of those in one year. Just keep going down the yeah, list. <laughs> yeah, just check them all off. So How, How's life as a new dad? It's great. I tell you what, um, <clears throat> you know, my wife is amazing. It's it, feeding a, a newborn is just, that's a 24 hour job and it's, you know, I, nothing I can do about it. You know, I just, Hey, she's hungry. Here you go. And that's, <laughs> I can't. Not, that's not. like a 1960s <laughs> sitcom, isn't it? <laughs> Dick, Rob Petrie what? would hand Richie to Laura, oh, and that Rob. would be it. Yeah, that's, that's what? Exactly. I mean, there's nothing I can do about that. I mean, I can't feed her myself. I'll give her a bottle if my wife's not there, but um, you know, that's, that's about it. But, you know, it's like nothing I've ever experienced before. What is the most, I mean, of all those kind of life changes, what was the most surprising of the things that happened? Was it how difficult it is to train a dog? Or <laughs> was it how difficult it is to train a baby? <laughs> the, the, obviously, the, I think the biggest change was the having a baby. Um, you know, after you have a baby, I feel like before I was selfish. Like, that's... Once I have a baby, I realize how before I did whatever I wanted. It was all about you. Whenever I wanted, you know, my wife and I could go to a movie whenever we wanted, go to dinner. And now it's the opposite. It's, you know, her before us and um, just make sure she's taken care of and, and always, um, you know, has food and, and is good to go. But uh, I think that we did it smart. We got a puppy about... Mm, six to seven months before we had our daughter so it was like a little warm-up like, <laughs> that's right it was like batting practice for having a kid <laughs> there's actually probably a pretty sound theory behind that thinking yeah i mean they got you know you first have a puppy you got to get up in the middle of the night let the puppy out you know you're cleaning up after the puppy all the time and uh you know it's just a little mini version of when you have a kid let's go back to st louis i know that's not a, a fun thing for you but it's certainly relevant here mm -hmm. All that time in the minor leagues, nine years, finally you're a starting catcher in the big leagues, and your knee blows up running down the first baseline. How, what was that like? You know, it, it was rough, for obviously, for a few days. Um, and then, you know, I came back, and I knew I was going to have surgery, and I just made a decision that I, I'm not going to, you know, it's already happened. There's nothing I can do about it now. Um, I'm going to have surgery, and I'm going to try to come back better than I was before. And that's all I've really focused on. I don't think about what could have been, you know, what should have been. Um, I think that that's something that I learned in those nine years in the minor leagues is I'm just taking it day by day and trying to get better each day and not focus on the past and what's already happened. I'm, I'm just trying to use what I have and, and get better. And 
<clears throat> you know, I think that the way I feel now is the best physically I've ever felt in my life. There had to be a moment, though, where you thought, really? <laughs> Come on. Um, yeah, I mean, when I was laying on the ground in agony, it was probably when I was thinking that the most. Yeah. It was like, you got to be kidding me right now. And, you know, I was just running down the first baseline. And how does this happen? And uh, I was just trying to hustle and, and avoid a tag and uh, just hit the base wrong. And, you know, it's – I'm not a guy who dwells on that, though, and thinks about, you know, how unlucky I am. I think about – how fortunate I am to be where where I am, and um, you know, I don't think that's going to stop me from continuing to play for a, a long time. Good. The, the rehab process for the knee, when you're going through that and you hit those plateaus mm -hmm. where you feel like you should be getting better and you're not at that time, was there frustration at all with that, or did you have a pretty good mental mindset going into it, knowing that it would there were going to be not necessarily peaks and valleys, but it mm -hmm. wasn't going to be just a gradual progression to being better right away. Yeah, you know, I think that the trainers um, did an unbelievable job with that and, and letting me know what, you know, the milestones that I should be at and um, the goals that we were setting out. And they weren't big goals. They were very small goals, one at a time, and that's how we approached it. And, <clears throat> you know, I give a lot of credit to Ken Crenshaw and Ryan DePanfilo, our trainers, for, you know, bringing me along slowly. Uh, we didn't rush it. There was no reason to rush it because I had all off-season also to rehab. So they really, you know, told me, look, rehab is important, but rest is important too. So you can't go out and, and expect to be doing everything the first month, first two months. You're going to have to take it slow, and these are the small milestones we're going to set. And if you can reach those, then great. And I think for the most part, I probably reached them a little earlier than we expected. Um, but that's just because I can't sit still and I got, <laughs> I got to go do something. So um, I was always bugging them, hey, what else can we do? What else can we do? And uh, they probably got sick of me, but uh, it helped. <laughs> it does have its own timeline, though, right? That just can't be rushed. No, it can. And it's not, you know, you talk to the, the doctor and uh, he says, look, the, the graft will not be healed, you know, for at least six to eight months. You can't play on it. So don't even try to play on it. And um, six months was in December and... I went back and he said, yep, you're good to go, good to play, and uh, just get ready for spring training. So that, in a sense, is a blessing where you've had a couple of months now to get back physically to maybe close to where you were before and really hit the ground running here mm -hmm. in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I, don't have to, I, I didn't have to rush back to try to make it um, to spring training or rush back to make it to a certain uh, game. But it, it's been – if it was going to happen, it was probably, I mean, the best timing, I guess, yeah. if there was any good timing. Yeah. Um, if it was going to happen, it happened that part of the season so that I'm fresh and I'm ready to go. And like I said, I've never felt better going into a season. What impressed you the most about what was a very young team, both in age and experience, last year as the season went on? I think that pretty much everybody saw it, but it just it's always impressive to watch guys play all 27 outs, all nine innings, every game. And it's a long season. And, you know, you would think that every team is doing that. Why, you know, every team should be playing 27 outs for 162 games, but that's not how it is. And so I think that that stands out when you watch our club play and, and we hustle and we take extra bases and we steal bases. And, and I feel like we play a brand of baseball that's similar to the Royals who won the World Series last year. And, um, you know, hopefully we can do that this year. There's a lot of parallels there. You were at with the team at the end of Gibby's run and obviously last year with Chip. What were the differences for you? Between the managers? Well, or? the tone and tenor of things. Just the, the general feel of the, the big picture under the two skippers. You know, I, I don't know if there was a, a huge difference. I think they both are very intense. Um, I think that I think Chip's probably a little more outwardly energetic than mm -hmm. Gibby. Um, but, you know, I think they're both very intense. They both know baseball really well. Uh, and I think that, you know, both teams played a similar style of baseball. I just think that the results were, were a little bit better. And so um, I think we learned a lot two years ago. You know what I mean? 98 losses. There's a lot of lessons exactly. in there. Exactly. And we learned a lot. And that year we had a lot of young guys come up and get a taste. And so I think that that carried over to last year and guys continued to get better. We you know, you talked about the, the energy, the outward energy Chip has, and I've always felt like if there was a 10-hour energy chip, drink, Chip would be the marketing guy for yeah. it. 
does a team feed off that or at this level? Because you guys, I mean, listen, you're, you're pros, total pros. And I think sometimes people forget, I mean, how many man hours you guys have put in to get to this point. Do, do you take the cue still from the manager? Do you feel like you take it from the teammates? I think it's a, the whole clubhouse energy. You, you take, you feed off of that more so than, than just the manager. But I think that guys will say that they don't feed off the manager. But I think subconsciously that that you absolutely you're going to feed off him. If you're around him every day and you feel that energy, you see that energy, I think you're going to, even if you don't think you are, I think you're going to bring that energy to the game every day. What was it like? after you went through the, the operation for the knee and you're in the dugout and you're doing the rehab in the day, but then you're essentially a spectator in the dugout for the game. And the catching position was much talked about. Suddenly here comes Wellington Castillo and he has this month-long, two-month-long run where he's Babe Ruth. Mm -hmm. uh, what was it like watching that? It was unbelievable. I mean, it was every time he came to the plate, I thought he was going to hit a home run. He almost I mean, did. It was either a double or a I home know, run every was, time. It was unbelievable. I don't, um, you know, it's just... It's fun to watch guys when they get locked in, and, and uh, he was locked in for a long time. So, um, you know, he's he's just a good player in general. And, I mean, you look at that, he got to play consistently, you know, two or three games in a row and then a day off. And you get to do that for three or four months, and that helps. And, and earlier in the season with the Cubs and the Mariners, I think he was playing pretty sparingly. And so I think that, you know, that gets overlooked as, oh, he's hot all of a sudden. Well, he's also playing a lot. And so – it definitely helps when you get to play every day and get in the flow. Now, were you helping him handle the pitching staff at that point? Were you a voice or an ear there? You know, when he first got got to the team, I, I helped him um, just get, like, the first impression and, and what these guys' strengths and weaknesses are and um, kind of the mindset that they need to have. And But after he caught each guy a couple of times, I think that, you know, he didn't really need, need me a whole lot. Mm -hmm. um, we would still talk, you know, about certain hitters or certain, certain pitchers and matchups, but... Um, after the first few weeks, I think he was fine. What do you think when you look down at maybe your phone or a television set and you see Zach Greinke, then you see Shelby Miller, and being a catcher, obviously these decisions or moves impact you maybe more than anybody else. Yeah. What's that like? Uh, I don't think I can say on air what I said when we first <laughs> signed him. <laughs> but, but I think uh, I said the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you can imagine. I think uh, I was in shock just like the majority of – people who saw that the Granky deal and then uh, getting Shelby Miller I think that he you know might have been under the radar last year unbelievable year and I think that his wins and losses kind of made you go what you know what's going on here but um, the guy is outstanding and I, I don't think wins and losses are the best indicator of how well a guy pitched and you know he was not fun to face I mean I, I faced him in the past um, before last season and it, it's not a fun guy to face so very, very exciting to see those two guys uh, on our staff now. You, you're fortunate in that three of the guys are going to be in the rotation to open the season. We're here you know, all or most of last mm -hmm. year. But in going through building a relationship with a pitcher, how does it start for you? And what are the keys that you start to look for early on to gain their trust? Honestly, the first thing is <clears throat> just talking to them as much as I can. And then out in the bullpen, you really get a feel for what they like to do. And you can tell what a guy likes to throw just from just from catching a bullpen. And so you, you catch a bullpen, uh, you talk to him afterwards, you ask him, you know, what's your f number one pitch? What's your second best pitch? And you see what in his mind what his first and second best pitches are. And, and you assess it and you think, all right, I, I agree, I disagree. Um, maybe I didn't see what he saw. And then it's honestly, it's just communicating as much as possible and maybe watching some video of past outings and um, what he's done against us in the past. And it's honestly just a lot of, of back and forth between you and him. And as much as you can, the more you can talk to him, the better you're going to know him. So that's only going to help out on the field. And when you see a guy who, as you said, you know, the first, second best pitch, what the pitcher feels and what you feel may be different, how do you convince them? that what you're seeing is maybe the best. Because I mean, a lot of times guys will be, yeah, listen, I've been fastball slider my whole life, and mm -hmm. they may not realize how good their changeup has gotten. So how do you I mean, how do you work with them to try and convince them that, hey, listen, this is a weapon? Yeah, well, if, you know, first I'll try to tell them <clears throat> what I see and, and that, hey, I think this pitch is a good one. Let's keep this in your arsenal. Don't forget about this one. Um, and then, you know, maybe go show them video with while I'm watching uh, and then, if you have to, I think you can go to some stats. There's some, mm -hmm. you know, some new uh, metrics that you can show them that 
hey, guys against this pitch are not hitting nearly as well as they are against this pitch, and you're throwing uh, you know, your second best pitch more often. So maybe we think about um, moving that one around or just adjusting where you throw it. I was going to ask you about the analytics. Last year was our first full season with Dr. Ed Lewis. Uh, there's an avalanche now of data out there. How do the Diamondbacks, particularly the, the catchers and pitchers, go about incorporating that into a game plan? You know, I think sometimes you can get too much. Uh, I think that you get overwhelmed with data. But I think that there's a few key points uh, that you can take away. Um, and, and each guy is going to be different, what they take away and what points they use or what data they use. But I think the D-backs in general do a really good job of the coaches in the front office take that data and they kind of, you know, they put it into to layman's terms or mm -hmm. um, game terms when they go over the scattering report with us. So if we want to go look at the data ourselves, we can, and we do. But at the same time, if we're going over a scattering report, we're not looking at percentages of this pitch against this guy in this count. Um, it, it's just too much when you're thinking about in-game you know, process. So break all that data down, and then you're going to use that to write a scattering report. We've seen, specifically with catcher's defense, a lot of changes with pitch framing metrics. And I don't know how much you've looked at them, but either you or other catchers, have you heard, have they altered the way they receive based on what you know, what video you've seen and seen guys who are able to, I guess for lack of a better term, steal strikes more consistently? You know, we've looked at that a lot, and um, me and Glenn Sherlock and, and a lot of guys have looked at, you know, the catchers that are, have the best catching metrics and, and what they're doing. And, um, you know, there, there are certain things that you can do to make a pitch look better, but I don't – we haven't tried to change anything mm -hmm. drastic. Uh, maybe some tweaks here and there about, um, you know, how we receive the ball. What I mean by that is just maybe we're relaxed or maybe our body is in a different position than we were before, but nothing major, um, you know, no huge changes. And, you know, I think that's, that's something that's really hard to teach um, until we break down and get exactly why these guys are getting more pitches than other guys. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, there's going to be any big changes. So how do you look at 2016 and the catching position? An open competition. Wellington had the big year last year, but a little faded a little bit at the end. You were the guy at the beginning of last season. Give us a sort of a, a rundown of the position for 2016. You know, I, I don't um, – you have to talk to Chip about that. I don't know. I'm just going to go out and play whenever he tells me to play, and hopefully it's often. And, um, you know, as spring goes on, then, you know, we'll see. But, I mean, Welly had an unbelievable year last year. You know, look at – offensively what he what he put up and um you know i think there's there's definitely opportunity for both of us mm -hmm. um i think there's a good balance between the two of us we complement each other well so I, I don't see any reason why we both can't get a good amount of playing time yeah i would agree salty last year got certainly a lot of at bats mm -hmm. and, and oscar was in the mix as well so there seems like there's a lot of opportunity there for both guys. I think you, you hit on something, though, too, and, and you talked about it earlier in you know, watching this team play all 27 outs. And from the distance, that's what stood out about it. But there's a, it seems like there's a culture of competition here that isn't the same as other organizations. Mm -hmm. Do you find that, that that's what over the last two years has really happened, is that the emphasis is on whether it's competing for position or competing for each pitch or whatever it is, that that's, that seems to me to be the overriding philosophy for the organization? Absolutely. I mean, it's competing one pitch at a time, and there's a lot of factors that go into it, but I think that a lot of it is look at how young our team is, mm -hmm. and you got a lot of guys that are fighting for a job, fighting to be on the team. Um, at the same, and that in itself breeds competition. I mean, there's, you know, there's not many guys coming in where, hey, this is your position, guaranteed, no big deal. Now just go play. I mean, we have a few guys on our team like that, but first base and center field yeah, might be it, I really. Mean, yeah, and you know, you got those two, and you got it's hard to leave Peralta out of there. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I mean, it's it's a fight between a lot of good athletes and a lot of good players, and. Um, you know, it, it's fun to be a part of. It's going to be a lot of fun this year. You have a, there's a lot of guys I noticed, Leo. I know you were uh, going through the locker room as well. Did you think I was paying attention? No, I, I like to check just to make <laughs> okay. sure. I know I you weren't sure. paying attention. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> knows me. It's like being in one of the barber shops where the old guy is cutting the hair is asleep in the chair. Uh, 
<laughs> a lot of guys have new numbers. Jake Lamb is now 22. Uh, Socrates Brito is 19. Drury's 27. And you, we talked about this a little bit, yeah. are number eight yeah. because Matt Williams is back now. Yeah, I have a big issue with this. Yeah, I, I, I want, this is why I wanted to get into it because I know it's a little bit of a touchy subject about the negotiations <laughs> yeah. uh, for Matt to get his number nine back and you to go to number eight. Where are we now? Where do things stand? We're at a standstill in negotiations. I don't... I, I, I can't believe it. It's we got nothing going on. Uh, the two sides aren't talking at all about. <laughs> I have received no compensation yet for number no. nine. And he's walking uh, around wearing it. Oh yeah, yeah. no, he's yeah. Is he flaunted everything like in fine. front of you, just looking. He's like, hey, look oh, at the yeah. number nine here. Just draws a big number nine on his back of his shirt. Just hey. <laughs> now <laughs> was remember that was there an initial offer uh, from the Williams camp about the number, or did somebody just say, okay, you're number eight now? No, there was no offer whatsoever. There was, hey, uh, Maddie's coming back. Um, he's going to need his number back. I said, uh, okay, well, <laughs> just pick a new number, Tuffy. Uh, all right, well, I'll pick eight. It's close to nine. So, <laughs> Eight's a great number, yes. <laughs> Yogi. Yogi, but hello. Yeah, Come on, Yogi. Well, I'm a Boston guy, so I go yes yeah, first. Right. But Catcher. Yeah, no, nope, Yo- Yogi. You win that one. <laughs> No, well, he's got all the rings. Yaz doesn't have any Oh, rings. you had to go there, didn't no, you? No, yeah, I did. All right, the new guy already. <laughs> the rumor is, though, that Matt Williams will be having a grilled cheese truck at his daughter's birthday party soon, and I will accept free grilled cheese for my number. For a period of how long? Uh, I mean, A year's worth of frill, well, grilled cheese? Well, a year would be nice. Just one? One sandwich? No, I just want to be invited to the party. Oh, at this point, <laughs> you're, just, you're literally accepting table scraps at yes, this point. Yes, yeah. Because it just started out, I think, with a gold Rolex, right? And now you're down well, to a grilled cheese sandwich. Not gold. That's shrewd negotiating. I said, I said Rolex, and he said no, so I said grilled cheese. And I think that that's fair. <laughs> Both close. ends of the spectrum. Well, we wish you the best of luck with uh, the negotiations, and we're looking forward to the season. Tuffy, Thank you. Thanks, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Our thanks to Tuffy Gozawish. Want to uh, pass this along before we get out of here. Important Diamondbacks ticket news, guys. Uh, we are less than two weeks away from single game. Regular season tickets going on sale. That's February 16th. Keep that date in mind. Write it down on your hand or your forearm, just like you used to cheat on the it. test, Leo, in high school. I got it. Uh, February 16th, that's a Tuesday, one day before pitchers and catchers officially begin their workouts. However, the D-backs, in the meantime, are offering fans a unique opportunity to enter for the chance to get a special pre-sale on single-game regular season tickets. Log on to dbacks.com slash tickets. You can sign up, possibly get a jump on opening day seats. You can uh, get uh, tickets for a big series like the Yankees Thank or the Cubs, you, Dodgers, any game you like, dbacks.com slash tickets. Try and get in on that special pre-sale right now before the seats go on sale February 16. And if you're looking at single-game tickets, uh, check out one of the bobblehead days. A.J. Pollock, April 23rd, Goldie, July 2nd, Zach Greinke, August 6th, and David Peralta, September 17th. Those are the bobbleheads this When's year. What's the Burt bobblehead? We don't, we don't need that. We've had a BB bobblehead. Yeah, we need that's the Burt bobblehead. No, we, we need, need it with that's the, feel the, the hashtag feel Greg's the Burt t-shirt People would be it. smashing them. Remember yeah, how they what? used to throw bricks through the TVs at Howard Cosell? It would be like that, only with the bobbleheads. They'd use them as a... For target practice. Do you think, Leo, we could we could get one of those Burt Bobbleheads and just kind of, uh, like, we could dress you up as Gallagher. <laughs> <laughs> you could take a sledgehammer, do it a little bit. We were going we to have a Burt Bobblehead that has one of those, you know, play calls or something like right. that, but we couldn't find anything short enough to. There you go. See, the, um, I'm trying to wrap up the podcast right now and get <laughs> us in under an hour, but you're, you're dawdling here. Oh, uh, he's dawdling. Yeah, exactly. I, when in doubt, blame Leo. You'll, you'll, you'll catch on. Tried and true to method. I'm, by the way, I'm thrilled to not be the new guy anymore. It took four years, but finally oh, I'm no, not. Oh, no, we're still going to make I'm fun of you like you're anymore. the new guy. Yeah. <laughs> you're just an easy mark. I, I mean. <laughs> Good to see. Uh, also, two weeks from Saturday, 12th annual Subway D-Backs Fan Fest, February 20th, noon to 4 hey. Chase Field. Now, Are you going to be there? I will be there. Leo, will you be there? Hey, I'm going to be there. Mike. Mike, you going to be there? Your first fan fest. <coughs> first one. You can't you miss this, right? About this is a be. no-brainer for you. you got to meet the people. This is not optional. So I fans. didn't anticipate getting oh, here this we go. job this winter. Uh, here I we have go. to go back to Washington for a 
wedding. Now, I, I am the officiant. This is what I was going to ask you. I've heard that you are actually not only attending the wedding, but you are performing the service. Bert, I am an wow. ordained minister this is, I, by the Universal Life Church. Now, this is not a gag, right? I'm not kidding. Universal right, Life he's Church handing Ministries. Me, wow. He's handing me a black I prefer card. To be called this is, by the way, Aaron. the closest you're ever going to get to a black credit card. <laughs> Uh, Again, it, radio, TV. Yeah, it says right here, Universal Life Church Ministries, credentials of ministry. This is to certify that the bearer hereof on That's the day, bearer, not bearer, bearer of uh, 4th of June in the year 2015, mm-hmm. Michael Farron wow. is, a, is a certified yeah. minister. So someone is having you marry them. So one of What's my, wrong with these well, people? I don't, well, they, they, obviously I work cheap. Um, the... We, I, I did my first uh, service this Labor Day, this past Labor Day weekend at Camden Yards. One of my best friends, who's a, a disc jockey, Mike Jones, at, at DC 101, which is Howard Stern Station. You know, you classic rock, DC yeah. 101. Um, but uh, Mike and his his wife Carrie actually met at our wedding, and so they asked me to be the officiant for it, and that was really cool. So that like doing it at Camden Yards was really neat to do that's, it on the flag. That's big. It's kind of cool. To, I, start calling a Padre or I'm getting all misty. Your holiness. Your holiness. So who? Uh, yeah, your holiness will call you the Pope. Like Francesca, he's retiring. Now you can take the nickname. <laughs> Is he really? Uh, win. <laughs> uh, so who's uh, who's the victim this time? I'd say it's uh, one of my wife's best friends from uh, high school who was in our wedding. He, he works for the CIA, so I can't mention his name. Wait a minute. But what? You're marrying a guy from the CIA? Yeah. Too. This whole wedding is very, very shady. I'm Leo. sorry, I can't talk anymore. That's about right. It. No, but, uh, but maybe we friend, should send you friend, over the bridge. Our friend I'm, Josh and, and I'm in the middle of watching Leo. Homeland now too, so I'm trying to think the uh, I'm trying to think this through. It's fun, like like we'll go out to at a happy hour with with him and, and say hey, he'll be in a bad mood, and you say, "Oh, did you have a rough day? Yeah. Did do you want to talk about it? I can't. <laughs> so it's you know it's. I don't want to know. Yeah. Neither, yeah. Do, neither do we, really. Yeah. If he's having a bad day, I think I might be having a bad day. So the point is you will not be at your first at fan, fan fest, fest a as a D-backs employee. That's a long way to get to the point of, yeah, I will not be at the fan fest. I believe we're still going to have it, though, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, somehow we will press on. Can you, If you move it to Sunday, I can oh, make it. Oh, here we go. Can you, can can you, you arrange you? everything just for me? The new guy wants everything. Leo, who right? do I call about You see, he just referred to you as the new guy. Yeah, the new guy. But anyway, for those of us that will be there... Our 12th annual Subway D-backs Fan Fest, Saturday, February 20th, noon to 4, Chase Field. Admission is absolutely free. You go all over the field. You meet the players, the coaches. You take the pictures, the autographs, the whole thing. It's going to be a fun day. Had more than 25,000 fans there last year, and we should have even more this year. Follow the Diamondbacks on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the whole thing. We are on uh, the Twitter at D-backs Podcast. And that does it for our 31st show, Season 2, Episode 6. News about upcoming guests, links to all the shows on the Twitter. Guests of Diamondbacks Podcast receive absolutely nothing, just our eternal (laughs) gratitude. D-backs Podcast brought to you by Beverages by Hoffman, by Martin Paints, Martin Paints at Anxious Paints, and Matzas by Strengths. For Mike Farron filling in this week for the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, the Earl of Grantham, the Governor Greg Schulte. When do I get a nickname like that? I was, you know, I, I thought last night about coming up with one. The closest I thought of was maybe you would be the buttermaker to our bad news bears. <laughs> you know, sort of just passed out in the corner of the dugout, half drunk. That's probably true. Maybe, yeah. the, maybe the the moral compass. Now that we found out his uh, his clergy background, Ooh, maybe the pope. I threw the pope, the pope out there. The, the, the moral no, compass my of the D backs really podcast. Work for a, for a papacy though. Like you need to find some papacy. Don't start like, throwing big words around works here. with the. What is it? The Lord, the Lord's the commander. Lord commander of the night. You're not a you're not a Game Earl of Thrones Grantham? guy, clearly. No. My wife is. By the way, we almost lost the Earl of Grantham on last week's Downton Abbey. Did it? Yeah. Did it? Oh Didn't. Boy. It was scary there for a while, but he pulled yeah. through. Did you watch Call of the Midwife too? Or oh my you know, I, you know what we started watching. The wife the and I started watching last really? night, which was shockingly good. Was the OJ thing? Oh, really? The People versus OJ. It's a mini-series, The got, People yeah. versus OJ. And they have everybody. They, they have a guy who's Johnny Car- Cochran and Marsha Clark, mm-hmm. and they, they have a Chris Cuba, Darden and everybody. Cuba Gooding uh, is and OJ. Cuba Gooding is great as OJ. And let me tell you this right now. Travolta as Shapiro, fantastic. Really? Unbelievable. It was. It is so – You, I thought it would be kind of cheesy and soap opery and take advantage of a, what was a horrible time, I thought, for our country and our culture. But – Boy, it, this is really well done, and the performances, some of them anyway, are really, really good. Is, is it better than than the the send up of the attorneys 
from um, the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt last year when Tina Fey. I love Tina Fey, but I never watched that. Oh gosh, that shows. Did you like Thirty Rock? I was okay on Thirty Rock. I was okay. I liked it. I watched it, but I wasn't. Show, but Unbreakable Kimmy. I I have spent, as I sent out on the Twitter the other day, I've spent almost the entire off season watching Parks and Rec, which is my closely becoming one of my top three shows of all time. I Ron have binged watched the series, the entire series, seven seasons twice. Ron Swanson is the greatest. That's what my in wife, my wife tells me all the time. Every every day, you are Ron Swanson. No, you are not. You are not nearly. You are not <laughs> no. nearly. Yeah, Ron see, Swanson. you haven't experienced the really dark side. No, 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 no. I don't think it has anything to do with that. You're just not. You don't do woodworking, and you don't have a secret career as a jazz musician. You are not Duke Ron Silver. Swanson. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I don't. I don't like to do. You're the not crafts. interesting. I'm not. And I'm boring. And I like baseball and oh, again with the time. <laughs> well, I'm just saying we went from finding the nickname to him to talking about. Parks I was Rec. wrapping up the show and you interrupted me and started chiming into the nickname thing. It's and nice here to we see are. you, Leo. It's it's good. Well, you you see how this works now? You feel like you're part of the group already? Yeah, uh, I guess. <laughs> All right. <laughs> for uh, for the Pope. <laughs> We'll go with right now. We'll go with the Pope and Buttermaker. That's as close as we've Pope come. Pope Buttermaker. Pope Buttermaker. And uh, the Mother of Dragons, the Kingslayer, Leo Bad News, Gil Martin. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. For, he's dialed in as always. Instincts. I'm Steve Berthume. Thanks for listening to this uh, rather lengthy episode. We'll talk to you again next week from Salt River Fields here at Talking Sticks. So long, everybody. Aren't they all lengthy? <laughs> This has been another edition of D-Max Podcast. The game is over. The Diamondbacks have got to win here. Thanks for listening. It's over. Go home. We'll see you soon at Chase Field for more D-Max Baseball.